welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. So today I, I have the pleasure of introducing CWIS to uh, Dr. Ross Knowles. He's a great friend of mine, my best friend. Uh, we did surgical residency together at Berkshire Medical Center. You know, we chat like every day and Ross was telling me some interesting stories about uh, COVID in the South and what it's like to be a, a rural uh, general surgeon down there. And uh, thanks so much for coming on, Ross. We really appreciate it. If you don't mind, just telling the listeners, uh, you know, a brief background about yourself and and what's going on down south with COVID? Sure. So my name's Ross Knowles. I'm a general surgeon in a small town of Buchanan, West Virginia at St. Joseph's Hospital, part of the larger WVU health system. Uh, I'm from West Virginia originally, from a town of called Logan, did med school at the Osteopathic School in Lewisburg, and then uh, joined Mark for residency up at uh, Berkshire Medical Center in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I've been uh, in Buchanan for the past year. I went right into practice into a, a rural practice with a, a partner and mentor of mine, uh, which has been really rewarding in a diverse diverse practice so far. And um, I live in an area which has a vaccination rate of about 40% total. Um, numerous reasons why people don't get vaccinated, access to healthcare being one of them, but just uh, general beliefs that uh, the, uh, different political thoughts towards that, whether it's a real virus and whether they can trust the vaccine, that sort of thing. Um, what that's led to presently is a, a huge backlog of patients. I had a, a, a patient I was consulted on yesterday for a septic joint, which as a general surgeon is not something I spend a lot of time managing, but this patient, a 73-year-old male with uh, no real significant um, medical history other than hypertension, was uh, moving his wood stack and fell into a, a, a block with his left leg. That was Monday. Came to the emergency department, got x-rays, was negative, started on some Keflex for a, a, a abrasion to his left knee. Came back on Wednesday with an elevated white count, having some fevers, uh, chills, lactate was up, CRP, sed rate also up, uh, was admitted. They consulted me 24 hours later, which would have been yesterday evening. Looked at him, was concerned about a septic joint. The local hospitals were all full, but we found a uh, found another critical access hospital, so sort of a lateral transfer, if you will, from into an, in another another hospital group. Uh, that orthopedic surgeon talked me through the diagnosis and the needle aspiration, which I got was I got an aspirate back, which was cloudy, and diagnosed um, a septic left knee. Uh, the question now is what to do with it. I called our tertiary care facility. We were, my patient was number 24 on the emergency surgery referral list, uh, not even just the regular <laughs> the regular referral list. So 48 hours uh, to get to the OR, of course, is unacceptable. Just incredible. Yeah. And uh, so at that point in time, I, you know, we can't wait on a joint that long. Um, I, I talked to the orthopedist, um, several orthopedists yesterday and said, you know, you have a couple, you have, you know, 12 hours or so. You can take, he can wait until the morning. I talked to the referral center. Uh, they walked me through what the procedure would entail. Um, I then uh, YouTubed that a few more times for a couple hours of research and uh, had the plan of doing the case uh, this morning at 8 a.m. Because it was either that or suffer the consequences of, of a delayed operation. Uh, fortunately, Around two in the morning, yeah. I was able to find a bed about three hours away, and the patient transferred to an orthopedic surgeon. But uh, uh, right now, I was placed in the circumstance of uh, doing a procedure that I wasn't trained for uh, on a patient out of um, uh, necessity because there's such hot spots uh, in in the backlog of patients within the healthcare system. Pretty uh, pretty unique time here. I'd expect that you know to do procedures that I wasn't completely comfortable with. You know, maybe on a medical mission somewhere in emergent. Emergently, but uh, 
not uh, here. <laughs> in my time here, particularly with COVID, is we have the ability to expand capacity. Because you know, we I, I sort of call and expect the, the the major centers to be full and always be full, and 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 that sort of is what it is. But um, these smaller hospitals can really rise to the occasion. And when there's a an influx of patients for whatever reason, you know, we we can extend our capacity beyond 25 beds, which we are right now, and and take care of a lot of the the patients that we are able to take care of, uh, the more the less complex patients maybe, and um, and that allows for the for the patients that are um, uh, in more dire straits to not you have to utilize the the major resources at, a, at another facility. Um, I, I've I've seen that done effectively here. It takes the right mindset of physicians, which I'm surrounded by here, which is really fortunate. There's um you know you have to be able to kind of know where your comfort level lies and 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 work to the your to the to the depth of your training, but sometimes you, know, you may have only seen it things a couple of times in training and you're still taking care of it here. And, uh, and having a, a, a full team of, of people that are really on deck for that, um, you can do some, uh, you can take care of a lot of sick patients at a small hospital, which is not something uh, I felt like I really saw in residency because we mostly got transfers from those hospitals without seeing what they're actually doing. Hey, Ross, pleasure to meet you. And thanks for coming on and sharing that with us. What it, what it tells to me, what it says to me is underscores is the is the importance of, of a well-trained uh, general surgeon. I think we're, as we further specialize, um, you know, it's we, we sort of, I think sometimes forget our heritage and our, and I think you've brought my my thoughts back today to the, to, you know, why why general surgeons are trained the way they are and why they are perhaps the most valuable specialty in a hospital, particularly a critical access hospital. I don't say that out of arrogance. I just say that out of uh, of reality. We're 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 trained to uh, drain pus, to take care of sick patients, to you know operate in several different body cavities. And I just uh, I'm just I'm proud of you for for uh, for stepping up and uh, and taking on that. So that, those are my thoughts. I agree. You know, you always hear it. I don't feel comfortable. I, I can't stand those three words. I don't feel comfortable because every every time it's always I have to feel comfortable because no one else is going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I also kudos to you for even uh, even agreeing to do the uh, the uh, joint um, you know, the, the joint IND. What my question is, you know, we've always been told that to um, transfer patients to higher levels of care. I wonder if in today's day and age, where you have the higher levels of care full whether it be appropriate to send patients who are not as sick actually to the lower levels and almost do a, a bed swap where you take, you'll take you send your patient who needs something that your hospital can't provide and take a patient from the other hospital and bring them to your hospital because for, for the care that you can provide. And I wonder if anyone's ever thought of that as a, a way to you know, to stop the deadlock and to, to keep things moving forward. I think that would be a great way to utilize the uh, capacity, um, particularly when the capacity is light in the peripheral hospitals, you know, cause, because the level ones are always pretty full. Yeah. Um, it'd be a good conversation for to have. Yeah, agreed. Let's um, let's move on, Sarah. We, we wanted to just highlight NOFO again, right? The November Forum and give some updates about that. We're so excited to, to talk about the November Forum and actually um, Everything is ready to go live, so I'm excited to announce that the member price will be $30 for the day, which is a bargain, and the non-member price is $50. Um, So if you are not a member, this is your opportunity to join CWIS and get a discount on your registration. What a deal. 
Um, for our industry partners, um, we are working with them in terms of um, opportunities to participate. So please um, keep a heads up on that because we'd be happy to have you um, listen in on the content as we did uh, or as we have done with our other online meetings. Um, so keep, keep eyes and ears peeled on that one. I wanted to just roll through a few of the topics that we have coming up on the agenda. Um, and Dr. K and Dr. White are, are really playing very pivotal roles in this meeting, so they can definitely describe some of the sessions a little bit more. Um, Dr. K, why don't you talk to us just uh, you know, a brief uh, moment about um, our um, imposter syndrome uh, session. The author of a, a very impressive um, article in, in Journal of American College of Surgeons uh, looking at um, a survey done on surgical residents to see if they exhibit some um, signs and symptoms of imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome for layman's terms is more or less thinking that you don't deserve the accolades that you have. Um, and um, I can tell you um, firsthand that there are a lot of people in CWIS who probably have this, uh, me included. It, it's a, it should be a very interesting uh, discussion. She's gonna talk about the, uh, the residents and how they feel about it. And there's almost like a 76% um, um, imposter syndrome um, positivity rate. So it's, it's just impressive that um, it, the question is, is why? You know, is it what kind of people are, are we um, you know, are, are coming into residencies? Or all of us who are residents in surgery, do we have some of these these you know, innate um, innate findings? Um, but it should be very interesting to discuss with her what, what her thoughts are, and also to see um, how, how this goes on and, just, and it goes into the attending role as well. So it should be a very interesting uh, 15 minutes of conversation. Yeah, her, her data is interesting. It's so common in this, this group of trainees that it almost begs the question of whether it's normal to be that way and whether not having any of these traits is actually the abnormal person. And I'm just, I'm, I can't wait to, to dive into this in a deeper way. Uh, I think everybody's going to find something in this for them. I think so. So I think that's one of the sessions that I'm I'm pretty excited about. Then, Dr. White, do you want to speak to um, Dr. Ellison's presentation about um, you know the unexpected bad outcome? Maybe give us a preview there. I hope you can overhear me. Uh, you know, hear hear me over the crashing waves behind me. But uh, I'll try to muddle through here. Um, yeah, Dr. Ellis, Dr. Ellison is a uh, is an expert on shame uh, as it relates to bad outcomes and unexpected complications, et cetera. And I think um, to, to deny it is pathologic. And uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to his session particularly because I think he's going to define the problem for us and then to outline some strategies for coping with inevitable emotion uh, of shame. Going to be a nice balance of clinical topics and you know non-clinical human behavior topics, and I'm, I'm just really excited about that. Thank you. I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, so switching over to the more clinical side, Dr. Crisco, do you want to give us a short glimpse into our topic of are we, are we surfing too much and, you know, what, what we can anticipate there? Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting topic. There's, you know, plenty of people out there who are who are still, you know, not, I, I don't want to use the word not believers, but they're not extending uh, SSRF to certain patient populations, healthy skeptics. They think we're doing it too much, and they're just worried that we'll get to that point that other specialties have gotten that uh, it becomes uh, abused uh, rather than truly helpful. And 
I think it's a great topic. We'll kind of do it like a point counterpoint conversation with a specific case. We have uh, some good speakers for that, but I, I think it's uh, definitely something we're talking about, especially in light of what we've highlighted a couple times in the show this month, even or, or last month, you know, and the possibility that maybe in some populations surfing might induce, um, you know, acute lung injury. It's, a, it's an interesting topic. We're excited about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Along the clinical lines, I also would, would um, add in that we're going to talk about or we're going to have a preview into the five papers you should have noticed in the past year, but we're, we're um, tilting this on its head just a little bit. It'll be um, just a little bit different than the normal look at it. We're having three of our, our stalwart members. Um, we are, we're giving them a list of 25 papers to select from, and then from those papers, they'll be presenting for us which of those five papers you know you absolutely should have have looked at and it'll be interesting to compare their lists and and certainly contrast them and see you know where where there was overlap or maybe divergence and um so you may walk away with 15 new publications that that you want to look up um or maybe just five that you want to pubmed we'll see but i i think it'll be a terrific opportunity to really kind of glance at just the past 12 months what have we seen? And I, I, as I was pulling um, our list, I, it's just amazing how much has been released in the past year, despite everybody being extremely focused on, on their, you know, as we've discussed, heavy COVID responsibilities and other clinical research associated with the coronavirus. Um, we still had just a terrific amount of, of chest wall injury-related research, both in the operative and non-operative management. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot to, to dive into, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to sharing it with you. The other item um, that, Dr. White, I would have you highlight for us is our equipoise inpatient consent. Maybe give us a brief highlight of what that looks like. It's a recognition that inpatient-informed consent process may not be uh, ideal as it relates to or as compared with the informed consent process that is uh, critical in, in, in research. What are the commonalities and how might they differ? Is it a worthy goal to really p- present equipoise to patients when they're making a decision about surgery and when you're helping them on that decision and whether equipoise is, is useful or whether it can be a, a, a hindrance in that process? So it's just exploring the, the informed consent process with an individual patient doing so using the uh, research model as a, as a context or a backdrop. So uh, that's the idea anyway. We'll see where that one goes. Thank you so much. What I think our listeners um, can tell based on the descriptions that have been provided, as well as when they see the full agenda come out this weekend, is that there is just a real um, width and depth to the, the agenda. And we're super excited to share it with you, super excited to share that day with you, um, it will be recorded and archived so that if anybody is unable to participate live, please know that you'll be able to watch it after the fact. But there will be so much great content and so many opportunities for interaction. I think you'll want to be live um, if you can. So please put it on your calendar, and, and then we'll look forward to seeing you there. Awesome. Well, uh, we can do a quick final stitch. I can go first. I, I, mine is just uh, saying thank you to you, uh, Dr. Knowles, for what you're doing down south and keeping patients safe and working hard in the, in the face of another, another run of COVID. So thanks for coming on the show and um, th- thanks for everything you're doing down there. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, and thank you for the people that are you know out there um, encouraging your patients to get vaccinated <laughs> at this point. I mean, it is just 
it's pretty, you know, it's, I, I, I was really hoping for this to kind of be beyond us uh, as things start to open up, but there's just places that it's not. Yeah, and it, I, I appreciate the providers at the tertiary care centers that are willing to give their time at 2 in the morning to walk people through procedures that they're not real comfortable with. So that's that's an awesome resource to have, too. So thanks for having me. Very nice. I'm going to say, uh, I just want to, you know, this past week I sent out an email to um, the Sea Was Faithful uh, about my weird idea of, um, of looking at a lot of dead people. Um, and uh, I want to thank everyone for responding. We have like five more centers who are willing to help out. And uh, I'll just, I'll give it one more try. Uh, anyone who has um, access to a cadaver lab, uh, we want to really get a very large cohort of cadavers to look at and see about this crazy slip rib syndrome that we're, we're starting to take care of. I want to know what the actual prevalence is. How many patients have this? How many people actually come, you know, people come to see us for their pain, but I'm assuming probably a large portion of patients already have this problem. They just don't either they don't have the pain or they don't realize that the pain is something that they can actually get fixed. Um, so if anyone else is out there who has access to a cadaver lab, please um, email me or Sarah Ann, um, and we can um, add you to our list. And um, hopefully in the next month or two, we'll get this thing going. And anytime you're near a cadaver, you just take a quick look at their uh, costal margin and give me an answer. Um, I really do appreciate all the help. Thank you. So my final stitch is, is purely selfish, but I just have to celebrate because other people will understand how excited I am. They came this morning, my, my handyman came and hung my glass board. It's like a chalkboard, but it's glass and it's magnetic and it's glorious. And I have all these notes now and, and my to-do list is starting to go up and my little organizational geek heart is so happy you guys it is just like a little glimpse of joy i wanted this thing to be delivered a long time ago it is six feet by four feet there is plenty of real estate like if i'm thinking about it and it's on seawis it's on this board now <laughs> so thank you and i have eight colors of markers eight colors of markers who is that lucky me what, i am that lucky what color am i <sighs> yeah he's you got a in... color you have red. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs>